0: I'm Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, and welcome to another edition of our speaker series. And we welcome to the floor, Frankie from Focus on Recovery. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me the, the pleasure of speaking. Uh, yeah, I'm a grateful grateful to be here alive and sober this morning, and I want to thank God for that. And uh, gratitude was never part of my vocabulary co- prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, uh, right off the bat, uh, I grew up in chaos. You know, um, my mom, she wasn't with my father anymore. Uh, she got with a new boyfriend, and my father wanted to see me when I was an infant. And my father wasn't trying to, uh, excuse me, my dad, becomes my stepdad becomes my dad in my story. Uh, he wasn't trying to do any co-parenting. You know, I was born in Compton, California. And so when my father was trying to, uh, Search for me and look for me and trying to be a uh, dad. My dad said, No way, I'm not co parenting. So he took us to Mexico City where I was raised to the age of nine. And uh, in Mexico City, there was a lot of abuse. You know, uh, I think he had a resentment or the fact that we were in Mexico City because of me or the fact that I was very hyperactive and could never sit still doing anything. I was that kid that you would tell him not to do something. Or not to touch the socket, and I would be right there, trying to touch the socket, waiting for you to uh, say something or uh, get me in trouble. And so my dad tried to beat it out of me, unfortunately, you know, and that's not something you could beat out of a kid. And he even broke my leg at the age of eight from uh, kicking me so hard when he was drunk. He was also an alcoholic, and he didn't have no kids prior. So he did what alcoholics do. You know, he drank and was abusive, not only to me, to, to my mother. And so that was the kind of uh, upbringing that I had, you know, the kind of coping skills that I had, Uh, what I thought was normal. You know, I couldn't differentiate the true from the false already at such a young age because that was normalized for me. Domestic violence, the machismo mentality, the controlling mentality, um, the narcissism, all that. And so finally, uh, we came back to, to Compton at the age of nine. And I was just, I, came, I got suspended from first grade. I was, I was I would just getting in trouble all the time, you know. So by the age of 12, my mom got tired of the beatings, you know. So she left my dad while he was at work because for fear of retaliation, because my dad was a drunk. And if my mom tried to leave him while he, he was drinking, it wasn't going to be pretty, you know. So she, she had to leave him while he was at work. And so at the age of 12, that was it for me. You know, no more abusive stepfather, no more, uh, no more uh, discipline. I didn't, I didn't respect my mother or fear my mother. As on the contrary, I had a resentment, torture because of my dad for allowing him to do a lot of things that he did to me. And so I, I started the, the really not listening and becoming really uh, defiant with my mother, and unfairly. You know, I had a, I had work perception already at such a young age. And my my work thinking blamed my mother for everything, not knowing that she was powerless as well, you know, coming to find out later my sobriety. But so anyway, at the age of 12, I was, it was on and cracking. You know, I, just, I started drinking alcoholically because by this time I had already drank alcohol. You know, my, my dad, uh, he used to watch Mexican movies Spanish movies with Vicente Fernandez and he would be drinking his beer and I would come with them and he would, you know, let me taste his beer. And he would be crying because, you know, the guy, the actor would die in the movie and he was already drunk and crying. I'd be crying right there with them, sipping on his beer and trying to be a man, you know? And so by the age of 12, uh, I started drinking alcoholically. Uh, I started drinking 40s of old English and King Cobras. I started hanging in the streets of East LA because by then we moved to East LA and I started gangbanging, you know? I saw love through violence in the streets because I had no love at home. And I was always just seeking that connection, that wanting to be loved. But I didn't know that my stepdad was my stepdad. I always believed that he was my real dad. You know, I didn't find that out till the age of 16. Having different last names never clicked that we were all from different families. You know, and they, each one of us had a different last name. And so out of all my siblings, meaning we're all from different fathers, you know? So uh, yeah, I, I just started, uh, I went hard at the age of 12 and started up through violence in the streets and found out that the crazier I was, you know, now that I, I could act crazy, I could be myself, be hyperactive, be, you know, uh, the troublemaker that I always told uh, that I was. I finally uh, accepted it and ran with it in the streets. And uh, the crazier I was, the more that I was accepted, the crazier I was, the more that they pretended they loved me. And so from the age of 12 to 17, it was just going hard. Like I said, at the age of 12, I started drinking 40s of old English, King Cobras. I started smoking cigarettes, cigarettes dipped in PCP, started smoking marijuana, started sniffing paint, anything to make me numb at that age, you know? And of course I had to hang out with the older teenagers and they did what they did. And I was there uh, doing it with them. And that's why I believe I was introduced to all that stuff. And so by the age of 17, I was already kicked out of uh, six different high schools. I couldn't go to school in the LA Unified School District anymore, which is a pretty pretty big district, you know? And uh, I was kicked out of that district and sent to a job corps, you know, because I was unapproachable, you know? I had violence in my, ingrained in my head And that's that's why everywhere I went, I took me with me. They tried to uh, move my mom at the age of 14, try to send me to uh, Guadalajara, Mexico to straighten up, you know, because in two years, I was already running amok. And she knew that where I was headed, jails, institutions, or death. And so my mama tried, you know, she tried to send me to Mexico, woke me up at two in the morning said, here you go, pack your stuff, you're going with your aunts in Mexico to straighten out. You know, and uh, first thing they did in Mexico, my uncle was take me to the strip bar at the age of 14. You know, and I was introduced to that. And uh, then I started working for my uncle painting buses. And little did they know I was an addict, uh, alcoholic, and I was already sniffing paint and all that. So that was the wrong place to put me. And so, uh, so, yeah, I didn't last very long there before they caught me in the garage. Uh, not being able to move because I was so messed up, and so finally they couldn't. They they had no no remedy for me, so they sent me back home, you know. And uh, yeah, I've been kicked out of six different high schools. I needed to go somewhere new, and so I went to uh to Utah to a program called uh, Job Corps. Job Corps, and uh, I wound up in Clearfield, Utah, because I figured the further I was from my mother, the better I was gonna be not realizing that i was still taking me with me and in job at that time in the nineties, uh, the gang life was pretty glorified. You know, it was pretty popular. You had a bunch of rap music coming now. And so if you were from LA and you were in Utah which it's kind of a soft state and you had people from Wyoming, Montana, uh, Denver, you were kind of treated as a celebrity, you know, because of who you were and where you were from. And so, There I go, my ego kept getting bigger, my pride kept getting bigger, and I took me with me, I I was drinking alcoholically. I would go out to the city and bring back uh, bottles of Everclear, which was 180 proof, little bottles, disgusting stuff. But uh, I drank for the effect produced by alcohol, you know? And so that was very effective. And so I would send people to alcohol, to the hospital for alcohol poisoning because they tried to keep up with me, not knowing that by then I was already drinking
1: for five years hardcore, you know. And they would try to keep up, and and unfortunately they couldn't. And so two people wound up in the hospital for alcohol poisoning, and but they were
0: okay, thank God. And so anyway, I got kicked out of job court too because, as you know, you know I I I'm not learning how to cope. I'm not learning that there's a problem with me. If anything, uh, my false pride was growing even more. You know, that, is, that false acceptance was growing even more. And so uh, I, met, I met a woman in Jaipur who became my wife. And, and there I go, putting myself in a situation that I had no business being in, and that's marriage. You know, because uh, all I know is what I know and how I grew up and how my father was my dad how he was and and I became by that time the man that I despised you know I became my dad if not worse I became a, an abuser and I became a narcissist and now I also have my mom's codependent tendencies so I would love you to death and then I would hate you to death at the same time I would kick you out and invite you to come back in two minutes later I was uh I was just uh, very, very abusive you know, because uh, once again, when you grow when you grow up in chaos, all you know is chaos, and that's all I knew. I Had to unlearn some behaviors, but I did not know that those behaviors were there, because I was drinking too much. You know, I was always altered. I always blamed the alcohol. If I didn't drink, I wouldn't be like this. If I didn't drink, I wouldn't be like this. Well, there was points where I didn't drink, and I was sober every time I took my first uh, my first drink. So I was like this. You know, I chose that alcohol as a solution rather than to seek to, you know, better myself when I would make mistakes. And so anyway, uh, after five years, my my wife at the time left me, you know, uh, we had two kids at the time. Uh, By then I had a daughter and a son, which uh, to me, I I could have been a better dad, but I, I was the same dad as my dad. I would go to work, come back home leave me alone let me drink because i've earned it don't you know you're the woman you do everything around the house you take care of the kids you do everything shopping cleaning all that stuff you know i treated her so unfair how she lasted five years was beyond me and so uh yeah once once we we uh once she left me while i was at work because of the fear of retaliation because don't you know that's how my mom left my dad and it just, the cycle, the cycle repeated itself. It was a vicious cycle that was an intergenerational trauma in my life. My dad suffered from it. My grandpa suffered from it. His grandpa suffered from it. You know, I needed to break that cycle. And so anyway, um, I come back to, to California because once my, my wife left me in Utah, I was a victim again because I've always been a victim of life in my head. And so I was a victim again, and how dare you, and within four months, I got my first DUI, you know, in 2004, three months. Yeah, within four months, I had my first DUI, and uh, don't you know I was a victim? I got my DUI not because I was drinking so much, not because I blew a .18. It was because I was Mexican in Utah, and they were picking on me, and that, that was the kind of mentality that I had. And within that first year, before my probation was over, I got my second DUI. And then within that year and a half, I got my third DUI. And the only reason my third DUI did not become a felony is because of my second DUI. Uh, They arraigned me on the same day. And um, so when I got busted for my third DUI, I was in jail, and the the defender, the public defender, comes up to me, and she notices my name, and it's already a different name, because I'm in Utah than all the other names that she's used to. And uh, she tells me, um, I seen that you got a rain on the same day on your second DUI. And I'm like, yeah, if you say so. I don't remember half of it because I was drunk. You know, okay, and so um, do you speak a second language? I'm like, yeah, I speak Spanish. Okay, so we huddled up, we went to the judge. She did her thing and she's our judge. You know, there's a mistrial. The second thing, and the second one, because he was during the same day, he doesn't even understand what's going on because he speaks Spanish. And so the judge comes up to me, uh, Francisco Laredes. You know, um, do you, are you do you understand what's going on? And que uh, está Lo que pasó is I start speaking in Spanish. There you go, misdemeanor, mistrial, and I got it got that down to a, a a misdemeanor rather than a felony. And so by then. You know, Utah was my problem. I needed to go back home to California because three DUIs, I have no luck drinking here. So let me go try my luck in California. not forgetting that I had been gone for 10 years in Utah. And in those 10 years, I had minimal contact with my mother because of the resentment that I had towards her. You know, I kept her away from my kids because I wasn't gonna expose my kids to her. I was just, my, my poor mom,
1: she even tried coming to make amends and I wasn't having it, so, so I'm, I come back in to move with her,
0: you know, a full-blown alcoholic. They, haven't, they hadn't realized what kind of monster I'd become in the 10 years I'd been gone, you know. To her, I was still somewhat her son, and so she allows me to come back into her home, and by then, my big brother, they all lived there with her, my big brother and two younger sisters, And I had a big resentment towards my big brother because he was always treated like he was a smart one, you know, because he was cool, calm, and collected. He wasn't always very hyper like me. And so he was always treated like he was a smart one. And then my little sister, she she got away with murder because she was my dad's biological daughter. You know, and then by then, my mom had another daughter who I hadn't met yet, so she was innocent. So I had no resentment towards her. And so anyway, now all these people, all my siblings are my path of destruction. My mom is not my path of destruction because all life was such the sufferers were deeply affected. Whoever's life touched mine, you know, because they all suffered one way or another. And so I'm, I'm not even there two months. I'm trying to find my mom at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, I've already uh, threatened my brother's life. I already threatened my sister's. And by then, my mom's like, we can't have you here. So there I go, being a victim again, because I wrecked my mom's, uh, I got a fourth DUI, wrecking my mom's car. And uh, it was the best car that she's ever had, you know? And she only had liability insurance because that's what we do. We don't get no full coverage for nothing, you know? And so I wrecked it and, you know, rather than, than uh, her asking me how I was doing, you know, she asked me, did you see the car? Because I had wrecked her, her poor car. And there I go, being a victim, you know, so, uh, I ended up getting kicked out and finding victim number two, my second wife, you know, who lived in Hawthorne, California. And by this time, uh, I met her on MySpace and, uh, two, it was two weeks after we had met, I was on a blackout already verbally abusing her and she did not stop talking to me. You know, she forgave me and that was, that was it. I had found the next one. And there I go, uh giving her the world and then taking it right away from her back and forth back and forth with my behavior and so she realized that I was an alcoholic and I needed help so in 2010 uh she said you need to go back to AA and I was sure whatever because I lived in her house she paid all the bills and I was unemployable so I was going to do whatever they asked me to do and if that was go to AA I'll go to AA uh yeah and i already been to AA, so I was already, uh, I already knew what I was looking for or what I was looking into. Because in Utah, your first a, um, DUI, they give you 103 AAs. And so I did all 103 the first time, not knowing that I could sign my own court cards. By the second time, it was about uh, 75 that I finally realized, hey, wait a minute, I could sign my own court cards. They're never going to check. They never called alcoholics. Mean, they never made no reference checks, you know, so it was. I could sign my own things, And so by the third day, I wasn't going to AA no more. And so when I was going to AA in 2010, because uh, I was already burning all the bridges around me, so more, um, I already knew what to to expect, you know, people that I don't relate nothing to, because I was seeking every difference and never looking for any similarities, you know, because you guys live the life that I live, then you would drink too, you know, And then I always separated myself from you guys on that, on that gauging. And so I was never going to identify as an alcoholic. I had a drinking problem. You know, I was a drunk, yeah, but I never understood what an alcoholic was. And so anyway, um, I finally convinced them that I stopped drinking for about six months. And uh, I was uh, only smoking weed at the time. I was taking dirty chips and... Uh, my ex-wife from Utah decided, okay, this guy's sober for six months, let's trust him with the kids again. And so they sent the kids over for the summer. And it was a hot summer day, 4th of July weekend. Um, My kids were visiting for the first time since I left Utah. So I was very happy for that. I had a brand new job um, with an orthopedic surgeon. And because I had just graduated medical assistant school because his new wife was pretty encouraging as far as me getting into uh, some kind of schooling, because I was the baby, you know, she was just dictating my life for me. And I was, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. But like I said, I was unemployable and she paid the bills and bought the booze. And so I didn't want to lose that. And so anyway, um, I graduated, I get this job, my kids are there, I haven't drank for six months, but I've been, you know, coping other ways and not a cloud on the horizon you know everything's going well the in-laws were right there as well they were alcoholics but they didn't get in trouble you know and so they had a beer full of they had a cooler full of beer and my daughter i i grabbed one you know everything's going great you know i could drink again normally and so i popped the first beer open and my daughter was behind me
1: because she remembers and she was like dad you know uh, what are you doing? And I was like, said, it's all right, I'm just gonna have one.
0: And uh, by the fourth beer she's like, Dad, what are you doing? And then I yelled at her to get away from me. I'm the adult, she's the child, go play and leave me alone. And by 38 beers, 38 beers later, I was chasing my wife through her house, breaking doors off hinges and got arrested for domestic violence and uh told them that she had no rights to my kids because I was already pissed off and so guess what they did they had to call my ex-wife from Utah to come get them that night you know just throwing the world upside down all the time that's what I did I threw people's world upside down all the time and I was just a menace and so I went to jail got back out you know weaseled my way back into her home and uh Promised, promised to change. And by 2012, I was finally sick and tired to be sick and tired. I was, uh, by, by then, I became the office manager for that orthopedic surgeon because I was always a hard worker and um, when I was employable. And so I became an office manager and I was already on my way to losing that job. I was on my way to uh, getting my fifth DUI, driving home from happy hour, closing the bar down I worked in uh, East LA, and now I lived in West LA. And so I would drive, and luckily this bar closed at midnight, not 2 a.m. So I would drive home at midnight. Uh, One eye open in the carpool lane, all by myself, with no traffic, just asking to get pulled over. That's the kind of smart guy I was. You know, just bumping the music, full blast, not
1: giving a care in the world. And for some reason, on the way home that night, um, it was October 8th. 2012 something told me aren't you tired you know aren't you, aren't you tired of throwing your life away aren't you tired of, of hurting and most of all aren't you tired of hurting people because I wasn't a bad guy I didn't want to hurt people but I always made that choice to
0: drink and so I was powerless over what I did once I drank And so if I didn't want to do this and I was powerless over what I did when I drank, then I was powerless over that drink. Not knowing that, though, you know, something told me I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so I was. I didn't want to fit the UI. I didn't want to lose my job again. I didn't want to lose the marriage I was in uh, because now I I wanted to, to start making things better. And so I finally decided on October 9th that I was going to go to AA because I wanted to go to AA. And I did. You know, I went to a 645 attitude Adjustment meeting. It felt good. Then I I went to work. And then in East East LA, I went to a noon meeting called uh, on Serenity. It was uh, Serenity Hall. And I did a lunch meeting there. And then I went back to Birch and Hawthorne southwest solano club to do the 5 30 and the eight o'clock and i did that for four days and then october 11th um i got yeah I, I
1: had three days sober and i was doing meetings and i was listening and then i got paid and then i got paid it's easy to stay sober when you when you're broke you know but then when you have some money
0: it's a different story and so I, I, had, I was on the crossroads. I left work. It was either go to happy hour and continue to do what I do every time I got paid and just blow my check or go to Birch and continue to work on this thing called sobriety. And I could not make that right to go to Birch. And I wound up at the bar,
1: pounding on the bar, cursing myself for being such a weakling, you know? And, uh, but might as well get good and gone then. And I did. So the next day um, I walk
0: into Birch with my tail between my legs and I tell them that I
1: relapsed and uh, I really wanted to stay sober, but I I, I can't do this because I really wanted to and I fell and I relapsed. And this was the point that changed everything because
0: I was so used to my family kicking me while I was down, all the time. My employers firing me, you know, friends getting rid of me. And I expected the same thing from you guys. Okay, we expected it. All you did was talk BS about your wife and you never looked at you. And you know, all you, all you did was complain about everything. And of course we knew you were gonna
1: get drunk. But you guys didn't say none of that. You know, you guys said, it's okay. Come back come on in you know you hug me and then you told me we're gonna love you until you could love yourself and man you guys really like me you know and so i kept coming back i kept going to four meetings a day
0: for my first 90 days and so i went to over 270 meetings my first 90 while working full time you know And I really wanted this thing. And so I kept coming back. I kept doing four meetings my first year. I hid in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't work no steps, but I was hiding in the rooms. So if anything, I was still uh, very narcissistic in my relationships. You know, I was still very abusive in my relationships. Even though I wasn't doing the physical abuse no more, I was still very verbally abusive, very uh, manipulative. Um, And so, I wasn't changing. If anything, I was just sober now. I was still me, just sober. And and so something needed to change, you know, because if this is what sobriety has, I don't want it. I finally did everything you guys said I couldn't do, which was stay sober a year, you know, to all the outside people because the people in AA started believing me. But the people out there were just waiting for, a, for the shoe to drop, you know. When's he going to drink again? When's he going to drink again? When's he going to drink again? It's only a matter of time. And so finally, after a year, it was a very prideful year because I was just doing it out of of spite that. Nobody said I could do it. And finally, uh, sober is like, what's somebody have? You know, that's attractive to me because this ain't it. I'm miserable still. I'm still unhappy. I'm still very uh, controlling. I still have all my vices, uh, except I'm just not drinking and using.
1: And so finally, I decided to work the steps and uh, decided to get a sponsor. And I said, I decided to work the steps with, it's kind of loosely because I wanted
0: to get a sponsor just to get you guys off my back. You know, because I wasn't going into this like, yeah, I'm ready to work some steps. I'm ready to change my life. No, I was like, I'm gonna get a sponsor. So you guys can stop asking me, do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsor? And so, yeah, I picked out the 70 year old guy a white guy. He was a rocket engineer, but he spoke the big book all the time. And so I was going to go ask this guy who I had nothing in common with um, and I was going to intimidate him. You know, I was going to go up to him and be like, and I was going to be like, hey, Don, you want to be my sponsor? Uh, and put this mean face like, hey, Don, you want to be my sponsor or what, man? And I was expecting him to be like, no way, not you. You know, like, yeah, come on, have a seat. You know, you're willing to go to the lengths to get this? And I was like, yeah, man, whatever you say, you know. Like, okay, well, first thing you got to do is learn the daily reprieve. Like, okay, whatever you say. Uh, And then he pointed me out to page 86 to 88. You know, it's here. Just follow this outline right here. Just read it at first because you're not going to know what you're doing. So just read it, and then we're going to talk. And so I would read it for the first week and thinking I knew what I was reading, just reading it through and so, okay, <clears throat> excuse me. So after the first week we meet, we meet and he tells me, so now can you explain to me what it says in there? As far as the daily was concerned, I'm like, not really, you know, I just been reading it. Well, it's, it's a way for you to uh, get you out of you and start building a relationship with, with something other than you. And do you believe that something got you here to this point? I'm like, yeah, definitely. Something has kept me sober for a year. So whatever that something is, that's all you gotta rely on right now. Don't try to uh, use God and everything because he already knew that I, I would talk smack about God. Cause don't you know that I was a victim and that I blamed God. I blamed a God that I did not believe in, if that makes sense. And so and so anyway, uh, I start setting up here intent 10 in the morning cause he said, well, when I wake up, I'm gonna have untreated alcoholism every morning, no matter how long I've been sober, when I wake up, I'm going to have untreated alcoholism. And how are you going to treat that alcoholism? You know, that's going to be the point. Either you're going to wake up and you're going to go an untreated alcoholic, which is something I don't want to do and don't want to be. Or you're going to tap into the world of the spirit and you're going to start treating that alcoholism. And by tapping into the world of the spirit, all you got to do is just go, uh, prayer and meditation, which is what you've been reading for a week already. So there's nothing new. Don't get scared.
1: Like okay and so every morning he stated i needed i needed to set a clear intent excuse me i needed to set a set a clear intent because when i woke up i woke up
0: groggy i woke up tired i woke up not wanting to do anything especially anything kind of spiritual or you know that requires some effort and so when I woke up, I woke up tired. And so he said, you need, you need to get those cobwebs out your mind. So you need to set a clear intent asking God to uh, direct your thinking, asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. All right? Once you set that clear intent and get you out of the way, then you think about your day. What you got planned for your morning? What you got planned for your afternoon? What you got planned for your evening? And you try to include your higher power into all, all that equation." And then uh, after that, you say some set prayers, the third, seventh step, and 11th step prayer. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And so I would do that in the morning. And then throughout your day, you better – got to pause when agitated or doubtful. So now you got to start catching yourself every time you start spitting fire. Because I would spit fire all the time. You know, I was clever. You know, I grew up uh, with a living color, stand-up comedy, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, all that. I, I filled my – my anger with with comedy and and so I I could I could burn people you know and so it's taste the words before they come out of your mouth now you know pause 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 and if you have trouble pausing when that's your doctor then read pages 90 and 91 and the 12 and 12 which talk about self-control you know which talk about this thing becoming automatic the more i practice it because i've been conditioned so much to think negatively that it's intuitive my negative thinking is intuitive and because that muscle has been conditioned so much all my life that is this that's 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 the juggernaut of self-will for me you know that muscle and so i got to start conditioning the positive muscle that's very tiny and so um I can't set myself up thinking just because I started this, everything's going to be honky dory and daisies from now on. No, on the contrary, it's going to get harder because I have to walk through things now. And so, but I have to start practicing that that positive muscle, you know, that pausing when agitated or doubtful, that pausing when I have a negative thought. Which I had negative thoughts all the time, and I needed to pause myself and do a thought switch and try to throw in some gratitude every time I thought negatively. And it was some hard work. Cause I wasn't used to all that. I was used to just thinking negatively. And so now I'm starting to exercise the positive muscle. So I started conditioning that muscle. And surely, surely uh within time, you know, that negative muscle started dwindling and dwindling, and that positive muscle started taking over and taking over, you know, and I still had negative thoughts, but not as much as I did 10 years ago. You know, now the positive muscle is almost intuitive because I've walked through so much things that I know that this program has given me the spiritual tools laid at my feet that will solve all my problems, you know? And so I finally started exercising these steps and start practicing this daily reprieve. And at night, after all that, if that wasn't enough already, I had to take a nightly inventory. And that's simple. Just answer the, the questions on the top of page 86 when we retire at night. Simple instruction, a simple outline to uh, discipline me because I was undisciplined. You know, it's God, it says that uh, we let God discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined on page uh, 88. And so that was before I started working any steps, you know, and that was a good practice because, man, I will see how manageable I was in my behaviors, how manageable I was in my pausing, because I could, I could never pause in the beginning. And I caught myself at night when I would do the inventory, like, man, I'm such a jerk, you know? And so finally uh, we got into working some steps and I always knew what an alcoholic was. Excuse me. I always knew I was a drunk, but I never knew what an alcoholic was. Like I mentioned earlier. And so at this point is when I started realizing what an alcoholic was. And so we read the doctor's opinion, which told me that I had a, a uh, disease of both mind and body, that double-edged sword that my mind kept convincing me that this time is going to be different, that this time I'm not gonna hurt anybody, that this time, you know, I'm gonna drink successfully. And then once I took that first drink, then that double-edged sword. Now the uh, phenomenon of craving took over, the allergy that now I couldn't stop. You know, because I, I would take alcohol to the head. I drank for the effect produced by alcohol. And so when I get when I would, when I would get so stressed out, I would drink to to calm, that, to, to calm that stress. So alcohol was my solution to my problem. So I needed a new solution today. And so what was that solution going to be? For me, it was Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that was a solution. So I needed to apply some principles into my life that would uh, become my solution in times of stress and coping and all that. And so I started building that because, uh, yeah, I, I would just cope with alcohol all the time. And so I I started realizing, man, I drank because I was an alcoholic. I drank because of the effect produced by alcohol. And once I took that first drink, I couldn't stop. Now I realized why I couldn't drink like my cousins. Like I couldn't drink like, now I realized why my mom never believed in blackouts. She never believed me when I told her that I would blackout because that's the mind of a normie. You know, they don't understand what alcoholics do. That's a normal drinker thinking. And so. And finally realizing that I suffered from this disease, both of mind and body, that uh, I needed a psychic change, you know, because I would uh, get sober uh, for one day and then drink. I would do something really bad, stop drinking for one day and then drink. It would never last no more than one day if if it lasted the full day, you know. And it says this process is repeated over and over and I will become even more remorseful the next time, more remorseful the next time. And it says repeated over and over and this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. And unless I can experience an entire psychic change, there was very little hope of my recovery. And so my, at that point, my sponsor asked me, so what's this uh, a psychic change? And I was like, I don't know. You know, uh, well, to me, it's a spiritual awakening. Like, oh, okay. And so what's the spiritual awakening? Oh excuse me, he said, where's the spiritual awakening in the steps? I'm like, I don't know. Like, this is step 12, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Oh, okay. And so what, what do you need to do to get a spiritual awakening? I'm like, I don't know. Like, work the steps, stupid. Like, oh, okay. Okay, so so that's what we gotta do. We gotta work these steps. You know, trust the process, do not give up before the miracle happens. Because you're going to be discouraged. You're going to think it's not working. Don't give up before the miracle happens. Trust the process. You know, it's like, all right, let's do it. You know, I'm, I'm So I believe I was convinced that alcoholism was a disease of both mind and body. And so now I had to self-diagnose myself with that disease. And so we read uh, Bill's story, there's a solution and more about alcoholism. And uh, I, was, I fully conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, that I suffered from this thing, you know, that I was 100% hopeless apart from divine help, You know, uh, and there's a solution that gave me uh, options. Instead, I could uh, continue. Uh, there's no middle of the road solution. Either I could continue to blot out the consciousness of my intolerable situation the best I could by drinking, by doing all other vices to numb me or I could assess spiritual health. I could continue to use alcohol as my solution or I could have spiritual help. you know? And I wasn't talking about religion because I was anti-religious when I first came in here. I had a big prejudice against organized religion. And so I, we were just talking about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, trusting the program of AA, you know? Go on to the bitter end and then, uh, so I finally conceded to my innermost self that, yeah, I was an alcoholic, and yeah, I know my problem centers in my thinking, because if my thinking did not convince my body to drink, then the physical allergy will not sit in. Therefore, the crux of the problem is the mental state that precedes a relapse. You know, that's what I have to watch out for, my mental state that precedes a relapse. And... So I started, once again, combating those thoughts all the time, the negative thought switching, you know, with positive thoughts, with gratitude. And it had to be purposeful, it had to be intently, I had to do that because it, wasn't, it was, it's not automatically that it's gonna happen, you know? But the more I do it, the more intuitively it becomes. And so anyway, uh, so I started uh, replacing that that thinking, And so then we got into step two, which was, uh, came to believe in a power greater than yourself, could restore your sanity. And I I could believe, I was willing to believe in something other than me. You know, I had that willingness because, you know, my G.O.D. in the beginning was that gift of desperation. I was desperate, man. I wanted this, you know. And then the first year, like I told you, I was insane, but my higher power was you guys, your group of drunks. You know, that was my G.O.D. after that. And then after my first year, I started working some steps, you know, so then my G.O.D. became good orderly direction. You know, I was following some simple directions. And then after that, I started believing in God. You know, my my what I understood God to be. And uh, I returned to my childhood faith. And I, I returned to that that higher power that I believed in before that I blamed so much for everything, realizing that my higher power was innocent. You know, by then, um, and I was willing to believe. And then step three was simple because by then, I hadn't believed in God yet. It was still good early direction. So I was willing to follow, continue to follow some good early direction. That's what step three meant to me, turning my will and my life over to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I was willing to do that because you guys had shown me that you guys stay sober for 40 years, 30 years, you know, my sponsor had 32 years. My grand sponsor had 39 years when I first got sober. You know, my sponsor passed away a couple years ago, and then my grand sponsor is still going at it, you know, with 48 years. And so, man. And so, yeah, it's – um step three was pretty simple. It's turning my whole well, my life over the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, trusting that this program was going to restore me to sanity, you know. And so – if I really meant that then action was required and then step four came into fruition and so I did step four you know it says next we launched on a vigorous course of action so uh, right away I took step four and uh that was a game changer in my recovery because uh I was always, like I said I was always a victim
1: of life see how much I was always a victim of life and um And I finally changed my perception. Rather than to be a victim, I, be, I, I had victory
0: over my past with the four columns. When I finally seen that what part that I had to play in it, you know, and realizing that I had enough to to focus on me, I forgave everybody on my on my inventory because I needed to in order to focus on myself. And I've been doing that ever since. It's just focusing on on my defects and what I have to work on. And uh, it's been ten years. Since uh, I took that last drink, and today my my thought my last thought is even to drink. You know, I've faced I faced so much calamity that uh, I've had to match serenity with calamity, and you know, I'm not thinking of a drink has has been a blessing. You know, because I, I focus on my emotional sobriety today and not to have any emotional relapses. And today uh, I, I was to tell you that. You know, I work for the government as a SUD counselor. You know, you wouldn't believe me because of the person that I used to be. But that's what I do today. You know, today I'm a substance use disorder counselor for the county. And I get to do what I love today. You know, not because I get a paycheck, but because I just get to feed people with hope. And today I consider myself a hope dealer because that, that's all I can do is just give that hope out. You know, and my mom and I have a positive relationship today. I live underneath her unit, which is only God, because that was the last place I ever wanted to live, was underneath my mom. But I moved 680 miles north to be
1: around my mom and to do that living amends with her and to show her that I love her, you know, and that she got her son back. And... My dad, he's 12
0: years sober. He stopped drinking two years before me without AA, you know?
1: And I I got to find my real father a year ago. You know, he passed away two years ago, but I I realized, I found out that I have a couple siblings that I never knew with my same last name
0: because I've never met nobody with my same last name except for my son, you know? And so... These are the blessings that sobriety has brought into my life. You know, I got to marry this beautiful woman, which I had no business getting married again because, don't you know, my past. But she's also an alcoholic, and she's also in this program. And today I get a living amends by being the best husband that I can be, you know, because I was the worst back then. And today I get to practice being the best husband that I can be. Because uh, if I put my program first, Everything I put second is gonna be first class, you know? And so I wanna be a first class husband. I wanna be a first class employee. i want to be a first class friend. I wanna uh, be a first class uncle, you know? But none of that's gonna happen if I don't put my program first. So every morning when I wake up, am I gonna go untreated? Or am I gonna treat that alcoholism? You know, that untreated alcoholism. And every morning I make the decision to treat my untreated alcoholism. And I try just to be the best person I can be, you know, and that is my time. And I thank you guys for allowing me to share. Thank you. Frankie, thank you so much. His whole group is Focus on Recovery. And you can often catch him at the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time morning meeting online, found online, Intergroup AA, AA Solution Seekers Beginners Meeting. We hope you join us sometime.